Good morning. Let's begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord God, thank you that on this second day of summer, you have hung the sun in the sky according to your will. And that, Lord God, this world, this earth that we live on revolves around it at a set distance, at precisely the right place in the universe, Lord God. And that around us revolves the moon also at a perfectly set distance, sustained and held there by your great power and according to your sovereign will. And Father, we rejoice in those things because we acknowledge that we need those things to be as they are, as you have established them, that we might continue to survive and exist on this planet in what you've placed us. Father, were we in any closer degree or any further degree from the sun, we would either be too hot or too cold. Were the moon any further from us, Lord God, our waves would not be what they are, our gravity would not be what it is, and we would be under great or less pressure, too much or too little to survive as a species. Father, we need to be where you have placed us. Father, we are a people with needs. Father, our physical beings, as created beings, require air, food, drink, and even rest. Without these needs met, Lord God, we would cease to be healthy and eventually cease to live. But even these needs, Lord, as vital and as important as they are, are exceeded by a much greater need, a spiritual need, a need which we will look at today through Your Word. So, Father, as we come to Your Word and come to this time of preaching, Father, I pray first that You would bless the Word, that You would bless my exposition of it, Father, that it would be You speaking through me. And that, Lord God, for those here who have not known Jesus as their Savior, that, Father, from their eyes the scales would fall, and that their ears would be unstopped, that their hearts would be softened, that they might receive today the truth of the Gospel. Father, for those here today who are in fellowship with You through Christ, I pray, Father, that we would be sanctified by Your Word and by Your truth, that we would be grown and matured and leave here with a better understanding of the Gospel than when we first entered. Father, now bless this time. Use it for Your glory. In the name of Your precious and mighty Son, Jesus. Amen. Along with... Uh, Eric's, or uh, excuse me, uh, Greg's announcement, I wanted to also mention uh, that we have additional information with inside your bulletins. Uh, you can look there and, and get some information on uh, our thoughts on communion, as well as some of the other things that he mentioned. The details are all in there. Uh, as well, I want to let you know that uh, we have something new that we've put on the po in the pockets of the seat backs uh, in front of you. It's uh, a sermon card, and on one side, uh, these are going to make great bookmarks, by the way. I like bookmarks. I, I do a lot of reading, and so bookmarks are important to me. I plan on collecting a few of these over time. Uh, but we have on one side the sermons by series that are upcoming, uh, the dates and the titles or the texts, and in some instances, who's going to be preaching them. And on the other sides, we just have those same sermons uh, just by the dates. Uh, so we pray that those are a blessing and a valuable reference to you. Uh, we encourage you to take one of those with you. That gives you also an opportunity to read ahead in the Scriptures, see where we'll be at, uh, pray and study for yourself, and be prepared for that day of the sermon. Additionally, we want to let you know that some other changes will be forthcoming. Uh, we've talked about this in, in the last three sermons uh, that Eric preached on topically about uh, the church and uh, 
We want to let you know that in the forthcoming weeks, within the next few weeks, as a matter of fact, uh, our, our worship songs are going to transition from the overhead uh, into your bulletins. Uh, you're going to see next week, uh, I believe, a bulletin with a very much different look. Uh, I believe the lyrics will be in there next week as well. Uh, we're going to transition. They'll still be up here to give you a, an opportunity to make that adjustment. Uh, but the bulletins next week uh, are something that we think is a special deal, and we're really excited about it, and we, we hope they bless you as well. All right, as we get to God's Word, uh, one more time, would you join me? Actually, I have two key texts today. I asked uh, Greg to read the first, uh, but there are actually two. Uh, they're similar verses, uh, and they share um, the thoughts that I want to convey in this service. One more time, Romans 1, 8 through 17. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of His Son, that without ceasing I mention you, always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, for I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. You turn one chapter or one book forward with me now to 1 Corinthians, also the first chapter, verses 20 through 25. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. There is a question that good and wise preachers ought to ask when beginning and during and following the preparation and delivery of a sermon. Was the death of Christ necessary for this sermon to be preached? Did Jesus need to die for what I'm saying? In asking that, we're echoing Paul's priority in 1 Corinthians 15, ensuring that we are, as he was, Delivering to you as of first importance what we also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. That He was buried. That He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. 
Now, although I'm an older man, you probably didn't notice that, but I am. I am still very much a new and novice preacher. Now, one of the truths that is generally true about those growing older is that as we age, we find ourselves concerned less and less with gaining the approval of others. The concern never completely leaves us, but it does lessen dramatically. That's why you sometimes see old folks doing and saying things that seem bizarre. Because they don't care if you think they're crazy. (laughs) So maybe that's why it's easier for me to gladly leave to any legacy of history and to the judgment of others any verdict on whether I'm ultimately determined to be a good or a wise preacher. I do pray that God would, as all preachers should, develop and mature those abilities in me. But those aren't my primary concern. Those aren't my ultimate objective. My primary objective is to be a faithful preacher. Faithful to God. Faithful to God's calling on my life. Faithful to God's Word. And so toward that end, let me preface this sermon with two things. First, given the title to our sermon in the form of a question, who needs the gospel? I believe that by its conclusion we can all be confident by the very matter at hand, the gospel, that it was in fact inherently vital and necessary for Jesus to die for this sermon to be preached. The death of Christ is central to this sermon. Secondly, were I but half my age, and then half again that age, and were at that point God to double the years that He has set for me, I would not have ample days to fully expound the glorious depths and the beautiful truths of the gospel. Nonetheless, I do pray that we would come away today with answers satisfactory to the question posed. But even so, I confess that there are far greater depths to plumb And we have time today. So before we begin, let's once more go to God and ask Him to lead us into His truth. You bow your heads with me, please. Father God, the gospel. Is there a more vital subject that we could concern ourselves with? Father, there are many conceptions and misconceptions about what the gospel is, and we will seek today to examine and search out some of them. Hopefully, led by your word, we will land in a good and right place, a good, right, biblically sound understanding of what the gospel is, And who needs it? So, Father, I pray that you would bless our time together, that you would bless me and forgive my sins, for they are many, 
And I pray, Father, that you would bless the minds and hearts of those here in attendance today, that would we receive well your truth of your gospel. In Christ's glorious name, amen. Who needs the gospel? Because that's our title, it's even written in your bulletins. Uh, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time trying to coyly and cutely lead you into what our topic is. There's not any mystery there. We're going to spend our time today talking about the gospel. And we're going to talk about the gospel because God talks about the gospel a lot. In just the opening of Romans, chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, Paul, as he's led by the Spirit of God, mentions the gospel six times. One-third of what Paul says in his opening includes the word gospel. Apparently, that's a big deal. Apparently, Paul wants his audience in Rome to understand the purpose and intent of his letter. In fact, if we were reading those first 17 verses in the Greek, we'd discover that Paul's first use of the word gospel occurs just nine words in. And in its use, he's reminding us that it was in the shadow of man's first sin. You remember reading it a year and a half ago, Genesis 3.15. It was there that the gospel was first introduced. The scripture says, I will put enmity or hatred between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God was speaking His curse upon the snake, the serpent, who had tempted Eve and Adam into disobeying and rebelling against God. But in the midst of His curse upon the serpent, He also pronounced a promise and a blessing. It's called the Proto-Evangelium or the first gospel. And it's the first annunciation in Scripture of good news. And that's what the gospel means, good news. That God, God Himself, will take the initiative and perform for man what man cannot do for himself. The work of rescue and redemption from his enslavement to sin and death. But not only is the gospel the theme of the first chapter of Romans, it's the theme of the entire epistle. But even more than that, and we need to get this, we need to really, really get this. To embrace this. That from the very beginning, the gospel is the central theme of all the Bible. That truth actually complicated my sermon preparation this week. If you're new or visiting with us today, we typically try to make a practice of preaching expositionally. That means through a book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. In fact, the reason we're doing a topical study today is because Eric will be beginning 
a new expositional study through the book of Colossians starting next week. So today I was obligated to preach on something topical. As the Spirit led me to preach on this, I went, well, now what? Because when we preach expositionally, it's the text of the sermon or the text of the Scriptures that provide our text for the sermon. Teaching topically, I've got to find within Scripture that which supports what I believe is a valid topic to preach. Now, if you've been here for any time, you know that I occasionally write and read lengthy prayers. Every now and again. But I didn't know how well you would tolerate my key text being Genesis to Revelations. <laughs> We've been wanting to combine our services. If I had begun this in first service, we'd have done that today and next week <laughs> and the week after. <laughs> so look, more than just something He wanted us to hear and to talk about, God gave us the gospel. He promised us the gospel because He knew it was something we would, did then, would today, and would tomorrow desperately need. But before we can rightly address our topical question of who needs the gospel? We first need to define what the gospel is. We in America have a tendency to misapply and exaggerate the meanings of some words. And even within our question, who needs the gospel, are two words we often do that with. The first is need. We often ascribe to need those things we want. I need a new car. I need to record that television show. I need, I need, I need. You know, our knowledge of our needs is the engine that drives corporate marketing in this country. They rely on their success based on appealing to what you believe you need. The practice of advertising is geared to convince you that what you want is a need and what you need is what they're selling. To look better, feel better, be more comfortable, more successful. And if you bought it last year, you need the new version. The other word in the question that is often misapplied, misused, is gospel. Each of these words is often used to mean what it does not mean. So we're going to spend some time now examining what the gospel isn't. Now my desire today is not to systematically dissect or dismantle every false religion, or to apologetically drag to the theological woodshed any specific false teacher. I'm not even going to mention Joyce or Joel. My desire is, however, the same as Paul's desire was in visiting the church in Rome. 
to impart to you some spiritual gifts to strengthen you. Romans 1.11 Specifically to undergird and add foundational support to your right understanding of the gospel. There are two common, broad ways that the gospel is presented as what the gospel isn't. That because God is love, Jesus wants to be your buddy. And if you'll just invite Him into your heart, you'll be healthy and wealthy. Because after all, God wants you to have your best life now and has a wonderful plan for your life. Well, 1 John 4, 7-8 through 8, does tell us that God is love. That's true. Even that, He's the very source of all love. And in John 15, verses 14 through 15, Jesus does in fact and indeed call His disciples friends. The synoptic Gospels are replete with stories of the healings performed by Jesus. And Acts carries that forward with more healings performed by the disciples through the power of Christ. Clearly, healing is biblical. The Scriptures also tell us of good and godly men like Job, Abraham, Jacob, and especially Solomon each of whom were blessed with great material prosperity. But is that the gospel? Is that what the gospel is about? Though Scripture doesn't define them in the same way that the prosperity preachers do, there is no question that there are great benefits within the gospel. And because people naturally desire the benefits of the gospel, love, peace, and joy, it's often our temptation to present the benefits of the gospel, whether the real benefits or those perverse benefits, as the gospel itself. The problem in that is that the benefits are derived from the gospel. They don't comprise the gospel. And when we present them as the gospel, we present only a partial truth. I like what J.I. Packer says about that. He says, A half-truth masquerading as the whole truth becomes a complete untruth. So when presenting the gospel, we need to present it rightly. Biblically, not avoiding the fullness of truth. The truth that God's great love, very real, is demonstrated in the suffering death of His Son. John 3.16 and Romans 5.8 We need to present the fullness of truth that Jesus, as He says in John 15, 13, speaking of friendship, says to His disciples, Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for His friends. Teaching again that sacrifice is at the heart 
of love and genuine friendship. That fullness of truth is further illustrated in 1 Peter 2, 24, where our greatest need for healing is exposed as a spiritual need. Again, coming by way of Christ's sacrifice, who, it says, bore our sins in His body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds, by His wounds we have been healed. Yes, God loves us. And yes, Jesus wants to be our friend. And yes, Jesus wants to heal us and bestow upon us great riches. But they're the riches of Christ, not the riches of the world. And when we tell the world anything other than that, we deceive them and sin against God and make a mockery of Calvary and Christ's blood shed there on our behalf. The second thing that the gospel isn't, and hear this, the gospel isn't moralism or behavior modification. One of the most prevalent and seductive false gospels is found in moralism. And though it appears in many forms, the basic premise of moralism is always the belief that the gospel can be melted down and reduced to changed and improved behavior. We see this a lot in those who are attempting to, independently of the gospel, white-knuckle their way into salvation. White-knuckle their way to holiness fully determined to earn both God's favor and salvation with self-willed, self-attained, self-meriting righteousness. And unfortunately, tragically, it's often the evangelical church that's found promoting this false gospel. We do that whenever we tell a lost and dying people, a condemned world under the judgmental wrath of God, that what God desires and demands of them is that they straighten out their lives, that they get their acts together that they stop sinning and change the way they behave. When we do this, the church is guilty of nothing less than heresy. When we promote moralism as the gospel, we promote a lie promising God's favor and His Satisfaction of righteousness to sinners if they'll only commit themselves to improved moral behavior. But look, moralism comes easy and feels natural. In one sense, we are even born into it. Created in God's image, our conscience continually bears witness to our shameful guilt, our shortcomings, 
and our violations and transgressions of God's law. In other words, our conscience is continually screaming out sinner. It's this perception that makes it so easy. This conscience speaking out into our hearts and our minds that makes it so easy and natural even for parents to perpetuate moralism in their children. What do we tell them? Be good. Behave. Don't act like that. Do what's right. There's nothing wrong with that per se. But that carries over into every aspect and every perception of everyone around us. We judge ourselves and others based on moralism. Isn't it how we come to mark our societal scorecard of a person's being raised right or being, God forbid, a good person based on whether they live according to acceptable moral standards and conventions and social etiquette. Look, while the restraining power of the law of God is essential to human community and even civilization, it's not the gospel, and it will never save. When we press the law on others and ourselves, to do that for which it was never intended and could never do, calling legalism and good behavior the gospel, we pervert the true gospel and sinfully undermine Christ's redemptive, suffering, sacrifice. His rescuing gospel work on the cross. The only gospel that saves is the gospel of Christ. And the corrective to moralism is provided by Paul. It's found in Galatians 2.16 where he says, A person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Salvation comes to those who are justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Although the church, that's me and that's you, must never avoid, revise, or watered down our teaching on God's law, we still must be vigilant in guarding that we rightly teach its gospel purpose and intent. The law of God is given to show us our sin. To show us our want and lack of true righteousness. And to guard us, or tutor us, some of your Bibles may say, as it leads us to Christ. Where through Him, and only through Him, we might be justified by faith. Moralism is the dividing line, the separation the demarcation between Christianity and every one of its false counterfeits. 
every false religion without exception is in some degree or another drawn from and dependent on moralism. But moralism is not the gospel. So if the gospel isn't me-centered, God's love wanting to be my buddy and give me my best life now, and the gospel isn't morality-centered, my being a good person, living accord to a particular set of societal standards, what is the gospel? Well, I've gone through the Scriptures and I have developed from them, some of them, a biblical compilation providing you a description of the gospel and what it is. The gospel, the evangelion or good news, was prepared in eternity past. Second Timothy 1, 8 through 10. It was prepared in eternity past in divine partnership between God the Father and God the Son. Romans 1, 1 and 1, 9. And Romans 1, 2 proclaims that this same gospel came into the knowledge of men by way of divine promise. Genesis 3.15 again, as it was revealed through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And we're told in Revelation 14.6 that the eternal gospel is the power of God for salvation. Romans 1.16 Yeah. Good to go, right? What does all that mean? You see, we can't just, even from Scripture, take a few words about the Gospel and fully bring life to the Gospel. Because the Gospel's just that. It's alive. It's dynamic. It's active and effective. So let me offer you five points, also drawn from Scripture's reference to the Gospel, and some of the different titles and attributes it prescribes to the Gospel that I hope will help clarify what the Gospel is. First, it means that the gospel of God's Son, Romans 1.9, that the gospel of Jesus Christ, Mark 1.1, and 1 Corinthians 9.12, is the good news that salvation, our hope of rescue from sin, death, and hell, comes through the person of Jesus Christ, who Himself is the very Son of God in human flesh. That deliverance from sin's penalty, power, and presence, and the just wrath of an angry God is solely accomplished through the two advents of Christ. Second, it means that, as Acts 20.24 20, calls it, the gospel of the grace of God in all and every aspect 
is given to us on the basis of grace rather than any meritorious system of works. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 further explain that, telling us that grace comes by faith and that it is a gift of God, that it is given to us, not achieved through works, so that none of us may boast. None of us may say we had part in earning or being even worthy of our salvation. It is a predetermined act of God according to His sovereign will, in His sovereign love, for His sovereign purpose, to achieve His glory. Third, as it's described in Matthew 4, 9, and 24, it means that the gospel of the kingdom is good news. In that God will establish His kingdom on earth. And that there with Him, Christ's elect, with fellowship restored, will dwell with Him there forever. John 14.2 and Revelations 21.1-7. Number four, it means that the gospel of peace, Ephesians 6.15, is good news. That along with our salvation, the Savior's victory on the cross has ushered in peace. Peace in all its aspects. Peace with God. The peace of God. Peace with each other under the authority and lordship of the Prince of Peace. And ultimately, eventually, in God's timing, eternal peace in the world as well. No more tears, no more sorrow, no more death, and no more sin. None of those things which are contrary to peace. Fifth and last, it means, as Revelation 14.6 calls it, that the eternal gospel, angelically proclaimed to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people is a gospel timelessly applicable and unchangingly relevant to all of the world. And with that proclamation, gusseting Paul's in our key text, we find the answer to our sermon's question. Who needs the gospel? And I apologize if this seems a bit anticlimactic. But the only right answer to the question is everyone needs the gospel. In Romans 1.14, we read this. Paul writes of his duty to preach the gospel to Jews first, but to Romans and Greeks, and to the less culturally refined barbarians as well. Don't think Conan there. Barbarians were also the natives in Malta when Paul was shipwrecked there. 
It was for that purpose to preach the gospel to that wide and varied group of people for which Christ saved him. He issued that command to Paul at Paul's conversion in Acts 26 18, instructing him to take the gospel to the Gentiles. For what purpose? To open their eyes. So that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. That they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in Christ. Paul further defines that truth, and he does it succinctly in Romans 1.16, just two verses later, saying that he is not ashamed of the gospel. Now what he means there is important to understand. That's often a confusing verse for us. We think that he might mean that he's embarrassed about presenting the gospel. We use that when we're promoting evangelism. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Paul wasn't ashamed of the gospel. Be bold and speak out. That's true. But that's not the intent here. Paul is saying that he has no doubt that he is fully convinced of the truth and the power of God's gospel. He is unconcerned with it being found empty or impotent, knowing that God will accomplish what He intends to accomplish by the power of His Word through the gospel. And so Paul is not ashamed to bear witness to God's truth of the gospel because he knows the truth of God's gospel. He goes on to say that he's not ashamed of the gospel for it, the gospel, is the power of God for salvation. To whom? To everyone who believes. To the Jew first, and also to the Greek. To everyone who will believe. He goes on to further expound our need for the gospel. Doing so from verse 118 through chapter 7. And he says our need is due to something. We need it because of a condition. We need it due to the wrath of God being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Let's boil that down. Paul is saying that anyone And everyone who's ever sinned against God by the rebellious denial of His sovereign authority as their divine Creator is guilty and without excuse. That's you. And that's me. That's everyone who's ever drawn a breath. What does John say? If you say you are without sin, 
you're a liar. The unbeliever needs the gospel for the first time. It is only the gospel in and through the person and work of Jesus that sinners can be forgiven and delivered into God's everlasting joy. No other religion, not Judaism, not Buddhism, not Hinduism, not Islam, nor any counterfeit Christianity, pseudo-Christianity, not Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons or Scientology. None of them has a Savior who can bridge the chasm between man and sin, that depth and distance that separates them from a holy and righteous God, offering to them salvation by grace and not works. Only one message saves sinners and brings them safely into the presence of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ does this. But it's not just the lost who need the gospel. The born again need it too. The Christian needs it too. And we need it all the time. It's a common misconception for believers. It's a common problem for believers to forget their deep dependence on the gospel. We start thinking that now that I've been saved, the gospel has fulfilled its purpose in me. I'm come to Christ. I'm restored to divine fellowship with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I've been given a love for His Word, and I, I love to pray daily. I'm in regular communion with my Lord. And we start misapplying Scripture and thinking that the Gospel is the milk of theology. And as developing, maturing Christians, we want to set that aside and grow into the the deeper things of God and His Word. Eschatology. Soteriology. And a host of other ologies. Thinking we no longer need to study and hear the Gospel. But it is only when we see clearly our reflection in the gospel that we can rightly see our spiritual problems aren't merely our failure to obey God, but that our man-centric thinking is that which makes our obedience acceptable to Him. Even though we know it took the gospel to bring us to Christ, we think that the rest of the job is up to us. Whether it's pride or whether it's deep discouragement, we need to understand that every flaw in our character is rooted 
in our sinful inclination to believe and act as if we are our own Savior. Trusting not any longer in Christ, but in our performance and our achievement. Our success fuels self-righteousness. And our failures fuel self-pity. We need to grasp and understand and hang on to daily the truth that the gospel isn't just the ABCs of salvation. That it's the A to Z of the Christian life. When and if we truly understand that, when we truly embrace that and depend on that, we'll consistently look to a dynamic gospel, a living gospel for all of that personal growth we desire in Christ. We haven't matured beyond milk and grown into needing meat until that's something we really get. The more we look into the gospel, the more we'll see our flaws and our sins. And because of that, the more amazing God's magnificent grace will appear. From the opposite perspective, the more aware we are of God's grace and acceptance in Christ, the easier we'll find it to abandon our denials and our defenses and acknowledge the true depth and character of our sin. So in closing, let me say this. It's only because of the gospel. Christ's redemptive, reconciling work on Calvary's cross that we can ever come to that place where we can say at the same time, with honest affirmation, that we are far more wicked than we dare to believe, and yet more loved and accepted in Christ than we ever dared imagine or hope. At its heart, the gospel isn't a what, it's a who. Jesus is the gospel. And you and I and everyone needs Jesus. Would you bow your heads to me as I close? Lord God, you have loved us so, so very much. When we were yet sinners, enemies of You, enemies of Your Son, deniers of Your Gospel, You loved us to such a degree and in such a fullness that You sent Your Son to die for our sins. Father, I pray today that as we present Your Gospel, a necessary Gospel, a desperately needed Gospel, that hearts and minds here today would be persuaded to embrace it. Father, I pray that Your Gospel would do its initiating work in those who are not yet in Christ that by its power they would be drawn with the voice of Your Spirit into salvation, 
into fellowship, into eternal unity, preserved for your glory by the gospel. Father, for those of us here who have come to love Jesus as our Lord and as our Savior, Father, I pray that we would be reminded or know maybe for the first time that the gospel in our life is a perpetual need. That the eternal gospel is something we need to depend on and draw from each and every day. So, Father, I pray that as we prepare to leave today, Lord God, that You would do a work in our hearts. That You would compel us and draw us ever nearer to Your Son, Jesus. Ever grateful, ever more appreciative, and ever more dependent on Him who is the Gospel. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.